This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, December 15th. I'm Virginia Allen. History and civics education in America is languishing, and a troubling number of Americans cannot even pass a U.S. citizenship test. The Pioneer Institute, based in Massachusetts, is working to correct this. And today, Chris Sinicola of the Pioneer Institute is joining the show to share about the brand new book, Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. Stay tuned as we talk about the solutions that can fix this crisis of history and civics education in America's classrooms. Hi, this is Rob Louie, executive editor of The Daily Signal and co-host of this podcast. Each day we strive to bring you news you can trust. We see it as our mission to cut through the liberal media spin and provide honest, thorough, and responsible reporting on the most important issues of the day. But we can't do it without your help. As we approach the end of the year, The Daily Signal is counting on donations from listeners like you. We are the nonprofit news outlet of the Heritage Foundation and rely on generous gifts from our supporters. Please help us by making a tax-deductible year-end gift. You can do so by visiting dailysignal.com donate. Your gift will ensure that we continue producing cutting-edge journalism and investigative reporting. Again, that website is dailysignal.com donate. Thanks for listening. We are grateful for your support. It is my pleasure today to be joined by the Director of Communications and Media Relations at the Massachusetts-based Pioneer Institute, Chris Sinicola. Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Virginia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, congratulations on the new book. You all have a brand new book out called Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. And we're going to dive deep into this book, into the solutions that you all offer for a crisis right now that we're seeing within our schools related to knowledge of history and civics. But before we get too far into that, I want to ask you just to share a little bit about the work and the mission of the Pioneer Institute. Sure. Well, I'm glad to do so. So Pioneer was founded in 1988. Uh, we are a nonpartisan, I would think fair to say, slightly right of center think tank. And uh, we focus on several areas, economic opportunity, uh, which means limited government, low taxes, government transparency, and so forth. Uh, about half of our work is in education, where we've really focused over the years on things like high standards, accountability, uh, opposing common core and promoting school choice of all kinds, really both in Massachusetts and across the country. We also have a very active life sciences uh, group, which is important to Massachusetts because we have a huge sector of life sciences in Cambridge and elsewhere doing all kinds of cutting edge research. So in that sector, we try to do things like highlight the dangers of price controls and the mm -hmm. Inflation Reduction Act and so forth. Um, and we're also uh, doing some work in immigrant entrepreneurship, trying to show really the stories of um, people coming to America for the first time, first generation entrepreneurs trying to get a piece of the American dream and reminding the rest of us uh, why we all came here originally, I guess it's fair to say. Mm. So. You all are busy, right? I'm <laughs> a lot of things are. in the area of education. Well, why do you think when, when we look at the landscape as it relates specifically to civics education and to history, why do you think we're at this point right now within the education system where those two elements specifically are really languishing? What's happened? Well, I think a number of things have happened over the years. Um, I'm old enough to have had four kids go through high school and college. And we always did a combination of things like homeschooling and um, you know, private schools, parochial schools, what have you. 
uh, and so vocational. And the reason for that, or at least one of the reasons, was a reluctance to settle for what we viewed as mediocrity. Um, not that the schools are terrible where we live, they're not. Um, it's just that you look at the landscape and you think, is that all there is? Can't we do better than that? And I think for a lot of parents who look at that, they say, we think we can, you know, through a combination of tutors and enrichment programs, online learning, and so forth. And of course, those choices have really proliferated. But as to why and how we got here, I would say well, two main things. One is the real pernicious influence of left-wing progressive thought in American universities for a very long time, going back to, well, really the progressive era in the early part of the 20th century, but really picking up steam in the 1960s with uh, the movement towards you know, left-wing engagement and activism at the expense of teaching young people something about their history and the core values that they have. Um, and the other factor, I think, is a reluctance on the part of teachers today to delve into those waters because they're so fraught. It's so difficult to say anything, it seems, without being accused of something ending in ism. And when you look at math and English and you know, trigonometry, those are areas or, you know, where it's clear. There's a right answer and a wrong answer, you know, sine and cosine, and does the comma go here, is this a clause, and so forth. That's fairly safe ground, right, for teachers. Sure. But as soon as you go into something about, you know, the meaning of the country and what the Civil War, well, why it started, and who was on which side for what reason, everyone has an opinion, and no one can seem to agree on the facts. So I think teachers are sometimes reluctant to go there, and uh, schools, systems, and uh, departments of education may be somewhat reluctant to test it uh, because it's so fraught and it's so filled with controversy. So that may be one reason for the retreat from it. Mm -hmm. That does make sense. How, how do we move forward? And well, I, I want to talk about that more, more in a minute. But I, I think before we talk about the, the movement forward and the solutions, um, it would be helpful just sort of to have a fuller sense of the problem at hand. How much data do we have? How much knowledge do we have on how students in public schools across the country are faring when it relates to their knowledge of history, their civics knowledge? Right. I would say we have quite a lot, but we don't necessarily have enough or the right kinds of data quite yet. Okay. And the reason I say that is that it's very easy to measure those uh, quantitative topics that we discussed a few moments ago, the mathematics. You know, when you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress or SAT scores, which seem to be less and less popular over time, or uh, PSATs or GREs or what have you, these are measures on standardized tests over time. And you can say, okay, so our knowledge, say, of, of mathematics among eighth graders has gone from this point to this point. There's been a decline here. There's been a gain here. There's been some, you know, even Stephen here. And that's all pretty easy to do. But it's much harder to measure the, um, the qualitative things, the knowledge of history. Uh, Pioneer recently commissioned a poll, which was pretty sobering. We, we talked to Massachusetts residents about their knowledge of basic things about American history. These were uh, questions drawn from the U.S. citizenship exam, things that you know, new citizens or aspiring U.S. citizens need to know, and they need to get 60% to pass. Well, the average score among our citizens was 63%. So you can say, yay, we, we passed, we can all remain citizens. But it's kind of an indictment of, you know, when, when you ask people, well, how many senators are there, and they don't know, or 
how long is the senator's term, and they don't know. Um, it's it's a bit of a warning sign. And, mm -hmm. and look, I'm not a kind of person who looks at the glass and says it's half empty. I, I tend to think that a lot of young people and adults who may not be able to do really well on those tests, nonetheless find their way forward, right, over time um, through a combination of things, whether it's their social media feeds, their friends, their trivia pub nights, the sort of thing. You know, people do read, they do engage, they watch uh, the History Channel and they watch you know, Netflix and so on and so forth and who knows what are the channels. And they do get a sense and they do become curious about history. So they get what they need eventually. Um, not everyone is just going to the voting booth and pulling a lever for DR or GL or whatever the other letters are these days, um, you know, reflexively. I think they are generally thinking about it. Um, but there are warning signs as well among young people, and we know that there's not enough emphasis on history. And the emphasis that there is is too often in the first place saying America has these problems and was founded in this way for these reasons, some of which simply isn't true. And that's one of the purposes of our book and our work at Pioneer is to say to the nation at large, look, we don't deny that the United States has had a somewhat checkered history. There's a lot of problems with the country, warts and all throughout history. That's part of history, right? But if you don't understand the fundamentals of why the country was founded, what motivated the founders, you don't really get the full picture or appreciation for why it is that millions of people around the world are still trying to come here, which speaks yeah. volumes. It does speak volumes. Well, you mentioned the book, Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics for America's Schools. And one of the things that you all recommend in the book is that within our school system, that young people should be required to pass a U.S. citizenship test. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And of course, you just mentioned that. But uh, it seems it seems practical that we have so many various standardized tests that kids take in schools why not make that a requirement for them to pass a U.S. citizenship test? Have, has that ever been floated before within the public school system? I don't know that it has. Um, I think it's something that you know the book offers, which is a, a fresh take and a fresh look at this. But it is, after all, a test that uh, millions of new Americans face every year. And as I said earlier, they tend to do very well on it. Of course, the reason for that seems fairly obvious. They're motivated to do so, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you say to a young person, oh, you can have more screen time if you, you know, eat your carrots and peas. Well, they're going to eat those carrots and peas and they're going to get that screen time. Um, this, of course, is at a much higher level and a much more serious endeavor, becoming a citizen of one of the greatest nations on earth. And um, I, I know a young woman who recently took it and she was very worried about it. And she was you know, practicing and studying hard and went in all nervous and got uh, like a 99%. Wow. And one of the, um, I think the examiner said to her, relax, believe me, you're doing far better than most to apply for this. <laughs> you know? So um, th that motivation is very important. And it also speaks to the motivations. I think it's the same spirit that brought um, you know, the pilgrims to this country, that brought all the groups to this country over time, uh, the great migrations uh, from Europe. And those migrations continue today, right? We see new immigrants coming to America from all over the globe. And I'm talking here, of course, about the, the legal process of immigration, you know, the mm -hmm. folks who really want to be here, they want to assimilate, they want to become part of their adopted nation. Um, and they're here for those same reasons. They are motivated to become part of something greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you would, share some of the other um, solutions that you offer 
in the book, Restoring the City on the Hill. How how can we practically be a part of the solution, whether we're in a classroom and we're able to serve and teach students or even as, as parents in the home with kids? Right. So in Massachusetts specifically, and, and you, know, you always feel a little bit funny about this, coming from Massachusetts, we have a long <laughs> history here of offering candidates for president and trying to tell the rest of the country how to think and live and, and be governed. But uh, so I think we should make it clear that we're not saying this is an absolute must. This is the only way that one could do it. But we've tried to distill some of the wisdom uh, through the ages. Uh, the book is based upon a whole number of previously published white papers that Pioneer has done, some real deep research into many areas of education. So among the um, recommendations here in Massachusetts is one very fundamental one, which is that we would like to see the state impose or promulgate a high stakes test as part of what we call our Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System Testing or MCAS. Uh, it's the high school requirement. Um, and right now there's a science, a math, and an English component, but there is no social studies or history component. They are piloting one for eighth grade um, next spring to see how it goes. But since uh, education reform in Massachusetts in 1993, this has been on the drawing board and the state has never implemented it. So that alone sends a terrible message to young people, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, the state can pass a law which it then does not enforce um, its own law. Um, and we think that if you test it and hold students accountable, they will come out with a diploma which means something more than what it means right now. There is that assurance to potential employers, to colleges, wherever they may go in life, that this student knows this material, at least to some level. And it's not a particularly arduous um, bar. You know, this is a 10th grade level that we're talking about. So it's not like they need to be rocket scientists. So that's one local recommendation for Massachusetts. Um, some of the others that we have in the book are speak to the process of creating strong standards in your state, whether your state has weak ones or has ones which we've seen in places like Connecticut, which just promulgated some really uh, not very good standards that are, you know, filled with uh, I guess woke is probably the, the shorthand <laughs> today. Um, but we we're saying to folks, have an inclusive process, have a process that's driven by parents. Um, you know, the power of a few parents to go to their local school board and make a fuss just can't be overestimated. It's just amazing how public officials will respond when a few determined people decide to speak up and exercise their constitutional rights. It's yeah. a great thing to see. So we're urging states to do that sort of thing. You know, get involved, um, contact your lo local school board or your state, find out what the standards say. And look, if you don't agree with them, make some noise. Tell them, you know, this is, it's okay to talk about things like, you know, we, we cite in the book Howard Zinn's work, you know, well known for his People's History of the United States. It sold millions of copies. I get it. I have a copy um, right here in my library. And, you know, it's, it's not a terrible book. There's a lot of good information in there, a lot of interesting information. But it's not the whole story. And he comes at history, as so many on the left do, from a, oh, blame America first perspective, or here's what's wrong with the country. Well, I come at history from the other point. Here's what's right with the country. Here's why we founded this nation, you know, and uh, why it's important to understand that part of the story first. And then when students are older and have that background and understanding, they can delve all they want into the other stuff. They're going to anyway in college. This is sort of what happens, as we've seen mm -hmm. in schools yeah. today, right? It's true. It's yeah, very true. Absolutely. 
Well, and I think that gets to the point of is is there enough desire to bring about the needed change, right? I mean, you you have, of course, you know, folks like yourself at the Pioneer Institute who who are seeing, okay, we have these gaps in the area of civics and history, and we need to fill them. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, there has to be a, a movement to to either pressure the hand of those in authority in public schools, or for those in charge in public schools themselves to recognize we we have to change something. Something is amiss here. Um, and so how, how do we go about, whether it's fostering that desire uh, within the leadership of, of our schools or, um, or really rallying parents and individuals in communities to apply needed pressure uh, to our school systems? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And it makes me think back to the days when we were homeschooling our children and met many of the families who were doing the same. And you know, folks would choose that, call it school choice in the broadest sense, for any number of reasons. Some because the schools were, in their view, uh, you know, havens of secular godlessness and godlessness and so forth. Um, for us, that wasn't quite it. We just wanted a really great academic experience that we didn't think we could get anywhere else. Um, but the, the quandary that you find yourself in is that a lot of the most active and engaged parents are the ones who are opting out of the district public schools, the traditional you know, red brick public schools. Mm -hmm. And you know, critics uh, on the left, and they're not completely wrong in this, will say, well, you know, you're opting out, you're taking the best and brightest students away from us and making it that much more difficult for us to achieve our goals. And my response to that is, well, you may have a point, but we have waited for generations for schools to reform themselves. You know, Massachusetts passed in the 1993 Education Reform Act it was a grand bargain. A lot more money for public schools in exchange for accountability, high-stakes standards and testing, and a system of public charter schools, which have flourished in Massachusetts, but which remain far short of their potential because of caps on enrollment. So they were intended to be, I guess, rivals, but also examples of excellence and freedom. And the hope was that district public schools would look across town and see the new charter school opening up and working and posting great grades and say, hey, maybe we could imitate that model or maybe we could work with them. And instead, what we've seen is a lot of opposition, denial, and strife and efforts to squelch them and to stop others from opening. So against that backdrop, you say to parents who have these children entrusted to them for a few short years, precious years of their lives when their minds are sponges, and they say, well, we're not going to wait any longer. You know, we, we've waited for generations for you to change and you haven't done it. Um, yeah, I think back, there was a book uh, uh, Jonathan Kozel wrote um, in 1967, I believe. Uh, about the destruction, I think the title was The Destruction of the Negro Child in the Boston Public Schools. Mm -hmm. That book was revolutionary at the time. It was a call to action. Uh, this is a guy who you know, has gone on to write many other books. And what are we? 50 plus years later, nearly mm -hmm. 60 years later. And if you look at the Boston Public Schools today, pretty much the same conditions apply. Um, academically, they are, with the exception of the exam schools, dismal places to send your children. And parents of whatever background are trying all they can to get their children out, either get them to a charter school or scrape together the money to go to a, a Catholic school or to a private school if they can afford it, or through the METCO program, which 
allows students from the inner city to go to one of the better schools in the um, suburbs or outside of Boston. Um, yeah. So it's really, it's a question of what do you expect parents to do? Wait forever? No, their children will grow up. They don't have time um, to wait any longer. And that's why they're choosing micro schools and home schools and charter schools and all kinds of alternatives. Um, now, all that said, the vast majority of America's whatever million school children remain in traditional district public schools. And a lot of parents are intent on keeping them there for very good reasons, economic reasons, reasons of distance, time, cost, and so forth, or a sincere belief that these institutions, which are, after all, the descendants of you know, uh, Horace Mann and the, the common school movement, are very important to democracy. And, and I agree with that role, uh, with that, that viewpoint. They do play that role. Uh, they're very important for democracy. But we have to reform them. We have mm -hmm. to do better than we've done. Um, and it's sad that we have not done so. Mm, it is sad. The book is available uh, for purchase on, on Amazon. You can also find it on the Pioneer website. Again, the title is Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. I encourage everyone to check out the Pioneer Institute website. That's pioneerinstitute.org. But Chris, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it and appreciate the work that you all are doing at the Pioneer Institute to address these issues within our education system. No, thank you, Virginia. It was a pleasure. And with that, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thanks for being with us here on the Daily Signal podcast. We will be back with you around five o'clock today for our top news edition. In the meantime, if you have never subscribed to the Daily Signal podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button and also take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review. We love hearing your feedback and it's really helpful for us to see what you think about the show. Thanks again for being with us. Have a great day. We'll see you right back here around 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.